Thank you so much for joining me, Cheryl Lee, that radio chick. Welcome to the Still Rocking It podcast. We will have news, reviews and interviews with some of our favourite Australian musicians and artists. Today we speak with ARIA award-winning artist Mark Dennis Lazot, known affectionately as Diesel, about coming to Australia from America at the tender age of five. And being the youngest of seven children, he will also share who was instrumental in introducing him to Jimmy Barnes, which led to him meeting Jeff, who he eventually married. We'll also hear about the creative process he went through for a new album, Alone With Blues, recorded solo at Diesel's own Sydney studio during the COVID go slow. What's Mark Lazotte up to now? Let's find out. I'd like to welcome Mark Lazot. Hi, Shirley. Mark, thanks for joining us. Also known as Diesel, he's got some spunky new music he's just bringing out, which we'll talk about in a little minute. I just wanted to find out a little bit about your history, Mark. You are an American-born Australian singer, songwriter and musician, and you came to Australia when you were five. We did, yeah. I'm the youngest of seven. My mother and father, this was kind of like a very tumultuous time in the US. Any people that know history. I've been watching actually a series that was just giving me a lot of insight. It's called uh, 1971, uh, The Year Music Changed the World. It's uh, an amazing series. There's so many incredible albums that were made that year, but there was, it was just such a tumultuous time in America. And I think my parents might have felt that even though we were in a small town called Little Compton in Rhode Island, which is one of the smallest states in the US. A bit of a Norman Rockwell kind of painting, um, you know, like a distinct absence of fast food, which is very unusual. So a tiny little town with a town commons and a clock like the one in Back to the Future. Back to the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Potato fields, a lot of large Portuguese families all around us. Incredible of wealth across the water, which is Newport, which is where, you know, America's cup and all that. But the side that we were on was very working class and very farm orientated, very rural. Yeah, we we still scratching our heads to think, why did mum and dad uproot us all out of that little Norman Rockwell painting and take us to the other side of the world? But I think, you know, it was the end of the Vietnam War and there was a lot of uncertainty. It was a lot of unrest. My dad had been in the Navy. My mum was a nurse and they just felt a bit restless. And I think, yeah, the daunting prospect of trying to maybe put six kids all through college or something. My, my, my elder sister was already in nurses training. So I think they just thought, you know what, let's make a run for it now because if we don't do it now, we never will. You know what I mean? So they brought you on an adventure to Australia. I did. And, you know, teenage, teenage siblings, my older siblings, I guess in retrospect, there's nothing worse than you can do is to uproot a teenager at that time. It's, it's just, it's not what a teenager wants is like a new set of friends and They've all got boyfriends and girlfriends and whatever. So it was hard. Yeah. But, you know, we, we embraced the Australian life really quickly. We came to Sydney and we, my dad quickly made the decision that Sydney was too expensive. <laughs> Still my, is. My mom, my mom, yeah, exactly. My mom had made little notes on like places that she thought would be nice, like Northern beaches, Newport, you know, the beaches and all that. And I think my dad drove up there and just said, no, nah, this isn't going to happen. And so bought a secondhand Holden station wagon and drove down the Hume Highway and we ended up in Albury. Oh, and wow. Yeah, which I think was great because we started experiencing on the weekends, especially 
we'd go out, start kicking um, around the bush, seeing kangaroos and big iguanas and emus and things. So we got a, a sense of the inland of Australia, the real bush. And that was great. But, you know, after three years, I think we spent there, my mom and dad were like, okay, we need to be next to the ocean again because they always grew up and lived near the ocean. So instead of just going, you know, towards Victoria coastline or New South Wales coastline, they went, oh, let's go to WA. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very much my our dad is kind of like thinks in big, big sort of thoughts like that. Again, you know, I don't, I don't regret my mom and dad doing that. Getting to know WA was, was an amazing thing. And that's where I started, you know, my music career, basically. WA was where Mark Lazot's career really did start. In 1981, his first high school band, Dark Spot, won the Battle of the Band competition in Fremantle. And it was well regarded that Diesel's lead guitar talent stole the show and won first prize for the band. He also then played with The Kind, which included sisters Denise and Susie DeMarchi, played with Close Action and Innocent Bystanders before forming Johnny Diesel and the Injectors in 1986. Let's have one of their songs now from their self-titled album, Don't Need Love. In between that, we moved back to America. A smaller family or a nuclear family at that point, just the, the three bottom, the bottom tier of the family, because the bigger ones had split by then. My dad in his typical way, like was like, no, nah, we're not moving back to where we were, came from. It was not after living in Australia with not having to shovel snow. I don't think he ever wanted to shovel snow ever again. So we moved to Arizona, you know, <laughs> you know, that was kind of like, well, it's a bit like Australia, but not. That's where I started playing cello. So that was a good thing. It was my first like proper serious instrument at the age of eight. And my school, like public school there at the time had a music program and it had just happened to have cello. So my, my sister was going to the Victorian College of the Arts in uh, Melbourne at the time and sharing a, a, a room with a cellist and sent me a cassette of this cello playing by her roomie. And it really, you know, sounded beautiful. And so that was inspiring for me. And, and I got encouraged into doing it. And I you know, wholeheartedly and the yeah, embrace that. Bigger than you at that stage, wasn't it? It, it was. <laughs> I, I really just wanted a guitar though, all along. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't just that simple, you know. I couldn't just go. I want a guitar. Give me a guitar. So eventually, my brother and sister, you know, they put together some of their part-time job money and they bought me a guitar. And that was around the age of 13, 14. Less than. Yeah, yeah. I think it was my 14th Christmas. That was my Christmas present. I I remember. Uh, opening it about five times before Christmas Day and I kept like sticking it back together. I just could not help myself. I saw the triangular shaped box and I was like, I think I know what it is. It's not an ironing board. We are really glad that Mark's siblings got together and bought him that guitar. Let's have a quick song, Tip of My Tongue, included on Mark's debut solo album, Hip Fidelity, in 1992. Back with Mark straight after this and we're going to hear how we first met Jimmy Barnes, which then led to him falling in love with his beautiful wife, Jess. So you knew really from a pretty young age that there was sort of no plan B for you. Music was going to be your future. I saw my dad do gigs. I saw him rehearse with his bands, various bands that he would join as we moved around. I saw how happy it made him, you know. The time in Arizona, I think he was miserable, not just for because he was unemployed the whole time, but because he just 
couldn't find anyone to play with. That will go down as the like the most depressed period for my dad. And you know, I saw my older brothers and sisters starting up little bands, and so it just seemed natural to me. Music was yeah always happening in my house. You weren't the only one to follow dad sort of into the family business of music. There's a few of us. My brother has an amazing venue. Him and his wife Joe run this venue in Newcastle called Lazots, which is a beautiful theatre. Brian is a trombonist and he plays now more than ever because, you know, people like Joe Camilleri, for instance, you know, he has quite a bit of trombone in some of his songs. So he invites Brian up to play. I get him up, of course. He gets up with a lot of people and it's kind of like the house guy. It's like, hey, I'm the, you know, the host of the venue and I'm going to get up and play trombone with you as well. It's a pretty ideal thing. You know, it's very natural for us. And I've been lucky to do some projects through the years with my brothers and my dad. It, it eventually all happened. Unfortunately, my, my mother had already passed by that point, but we made a beautiful blues record called Project Blues, Saturday Suffering Fools in 2011. I got my brothers, Michael and Brian and my dad to be the horn section on that. So that was, that was a real family affair. It was great. I first came to see you, Mark, when you started playing for Barnsley. And because uh, <laughs> being an Adelaide girl, you know, I have to be a Chisel fan. I remember seeing you so young. Of course, that's where you met your beautiful wife as well. And I'm such a romantic. Tell us about how you met her. I just come to Sydney and I was sleeping on Brent Eccles' couch. Brent was playing drums in the, um, the Angels at the time. And he kind of saw us play in Perth. A lot of people had seen us play in this little bar in Perth and some potential managers, some really great managers, I have to say, you know, expressed interest and a couple of even came over to my house because I'd moved back in with my mum and dad at that point because I was pretty broke. And <laughs> they'd come over on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, you know, whatever, you know, they'd want to meet my dad and because I was like 18, 19, you know, so they'd do the right thing. And, and then it would sort of fizzle out or they'd go back to their lives or the other side of the country or the other part of the world for that matter. I had people all over the world approach me at that point. But Brent was like the first person to actually put his you know, money where his mouth is, as they say. And he kept calling after he left Perth, you know, um, Perth has that tyranny of distance, you know, it's like people mm. say things, they're going to do things and everything. And then they get back to the other side of the country or the other side of the world or whatever, and the time difference or whatever, and enough sort of kind of distance to kind of make a bit of a, a gap. But Brent really kept his interest up. You know, we started talking like once a week for about three or four months. We'd he'd say, what's happening? You've been, you know, have you written any more songs and blah, blah, blah. And I'd send him demos or whatever. And he just started getting more and more and more involved. And in the end, he just said, okay, I'm going to help you guys come across the Nullarbor. It was all very hypothetical. You know, I'm not signing anything with you guys yet or anything. Just get your butts over here. I'll book some gigs. And that happened. We were doing nine shows in a seven day week, you know, so figure that out for the first few months. But like literally after 48 hours after arriving on Brent's couch, because we, we were all like put on different people's couches when we arrived. Brent said, hey, um, and he gave me no warning to this. I'm not sure he, he, he even knew that he was going to go in the studio himself. But he said, look, I'm doing some drums today with Jimmy, Jimmy Barnes for his solo album that he's finishing here in Australia. Freight Train Heart ended up being the album. And I've asked Jimmy if I can bring you in because I said, I've got a guitar player sleeping on my couch, you know. And Jimmy said, yeah, bring him in. Yeah, sure. You know, by all means. I'm like, okay, wow, I'm going into Rhinoceros Studios in, in Sydney. And, and ironically, it was in the same street where the bus had arrived about three days before that, a bus that came into town from across the desert. I'm like, wow, everything happens in this street. 
You know, I get dropped off the bus. I meet Jimmy Barnes all in the same street. So, yeah, I go upstairs and Jimmy's in the studio. And it's the first time I'd, I've seen someone sing in the control room instead of being in like a little booth or whatever and separated. He was in the control room, speakers up really loud, singing into a normal vocal mic that you'd use at a gig, which is like a 58, you know, sure microphone, industry standard, as they say. And I thought, this is, this is like... This is crazy. He's treating it like a gig, you know, like it's just the, the, the energy, the vibe was like a gig. And it wasn't like, oh, it's like we're in a control room now or we're in a studio. It's all like very clinical and everything. It was just like, nah, make it like a gig, make it really loud, sweaty. <laughs> and um, it was about like 11 in the morning and he was at, just going at it already, you know, like it was three in the morning. Yeah. I just kind of like folded into it straight away. That's how I met him. I met him like literally walking in as they were like cranking it up. When I say they, it was Rick Brewster, Jim Hilburn, I think was in there playing bass that day and Brent. I added my guitar into that. It was a pretty interesting day because that was the kind of the day that a lot of things changed. Well, let's have a listen to one of those songs now from the Freight Train Heart album that Mark Lazotte plays his guitar on. Back in the 80s, I wore out at least two cassettes. How do you pick a favourite? You can't. So let's play Seven Days. Back with more Diesel to find out how he then met his beautiful wife after this. And then after that, I was doing gigs every night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, three gigs on a Saturday. We had Monday off. You know, Brent would have probably said like, oh, come and check him out. He's in a band that we've just brought over across the Nullarbor. And, you know, I guess in Jimmy's book, Jimmy writes it as like Jane discovered me, but it was actually Brent that brought me into the studio because uh-huh. I was sitting on his couch. <laughs> after that, Jimmy would have been busy, I guess, working in the studio, doing more things that week. So he said out oh, to Jane, I'm guessing, and to Jep, Jane's sister, can you go and check out this guy at this gig? He's playing at the Balmain London Hotel on a Saturday afternoon. And that was the gig I remember they came down. It was a tiny little pub in Balmain where the band would just be set up in the corner underneath the dartboard, you know, (laughs) no stage, just on the floor. You put your amps wherever you can sort of thing. Yeah. So we were ripping through our Saturday afternoon gig. And um, I think it was like next week where we did the Sydney Cove Tavern. And then again, they came down. I think Jimmy might have come to that one. I know he came to the Middle Harbour Skiff Club, which was on a Tuesday night. I think that was our Tuesday night gig. Anyway, a few gigs followed and I met Jet because she was doing the wardrobe on a video clip that Jimmy was shooting for Too Much Ain't Enough Love, which I played the rhythm guitar on in the studio. And that's where I kind of started getting to know her. And then my brother came back from being overseas and he met Jep and they started talking food and they started a catering business, like kind of on the spot. I've got my brother to thank a lot for kind of bringing her into the fold. Yeah, I think my brother got to know Jeff like more than I did to start with, you know, because they were working together as a catering company. So one of the first catering companies to work in the music industry. Before that, there wasn't really a proper catering company yet in this country that did the music industry and, you know, concerts and recording studio budgets and stuff like that. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, you know, food is is a big part of this family. That's all I can say. If you know this family, you'll know that food is, it's a celebratory thing. We put a lot of effort and a lot of thought and a lot of passion, just like music, I guess. Back to you, Mark, the album, Diesel, Alone with Blues. Is this the bluesiest of them all? I don't know. Um, I think the thing I did with Chris Wilson was, I think, you know, all the blues titles that I've done have been pretty blues in the sense of like, um, I've kept it pretty pure in that sense. But this is definitely the most, you know, solitary in the sense that it's just me doing everything. So it's there's a kind of a purity, I guess, for want of a better word from it, from that. But 
I wouldn't be the one to ask if you know if it was bluesier <laughs> than any of the other ones. The stuff that Chris Wilson did on short cool ones yeah. will always out is just amazing to me. To have the, be able to say that I've got to make that record with him, I feel very privileged. So this is a little bit of a tribute in a way to him and also to Michael, who was the one who yeah. brought you and Chris together in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, in the last two years, I've had to um, say goodbye to both of those people, unfortunately. And that's part of life. But yeah, unfortunately, I would have loved to have made another record with Chris and I would have loved for Michael to have heard this record. That wasn't meant to be. So I'm indebted to the memory and the inspiration that I got from both of those those men. On that note, I think it's time for a song. How about the first track off that album, Short Cool Ones? I can't stand the rain. You're still rocking it with Shirley. That radio chick will be back with more diesel straight after this. I can't stand, I can't stand the rain. Against my window. Like you said, it was a pretty solitary trip, wasn't it? Because you played everything. You sang, you guitar, you did the bass, the drums, the percussion, the keyboards, and mm. everything. At first it was a little bit. It's not that unusual to make like modern music, I guess, in that fashion, you know, brick by brick. But when I think of blues music, I think of a bunch of people in a room just kind of like feeling something together and boom, capture it, you know. But this was kind of like that same sort of feeling, but done in layers from myself. So I, I just kept thinking, is this okay? And I thought, you know what? Stevie Wonder made a pile of records this way. And they weren't like blues records per se, but they were, you know, they were soul, bluesy, funk. Willie Dixon says, the blues are the roots, everything else are the fruits, you know, and it's true. So, you know, I just had to keep reminding myself, it's like, it's okay. Stevie Wonders did that. As long as I just keep telling myself that it's not weird, it is what it is. And when it's, if you listen to it and you feel something, that's all that matters. It just was a strange process. I guess usually there's somebody around. I couldn't just call up and say, hey, come on over and can we do this? You know, you know, I've got some ideas, blah, blah, blah. That wasn't going to happen because I wasn't allowed to have anybody in my house at that mm. point. So You should be really, really proud of it. I had another listen again this morning and I really love it. So my favourite is the guitar one. How can you go wrong with a man singing about the love for his six-string guitar? That would be probably my favourite. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, Ross Wilson. I just love the, the imagery that he comes up with when he's writing lyrics like that. And we wrote that 30 years ago. So it's amazing that it came up in a storage tub when he was moving house at the, the exact time I started making this record. So it was, it was like meant a to really, really meant to be, yeah. Back with more Mark Lazotte after this. But let's hear Six Steel Strings now, written by Ross Wilson and on the new Alone with Blues album. Six Steel Strings Apart from the obvious, we know that you've listened to Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and Sam Cooke especially are your, what's the word I'm looking for, Mark? Who else do you listen to? gurus? Yeah, gurus. Look, I'm always discovering, the last few years I've discovered someone like Lightning Hopkins, for instance, or R.L. Burnside. There's so many, you know, or Junior Kimberoff. Those are all relatively newer artists that I've discovered. Anything on the Fat Possum label, basically, I can I have to add. The Fat Possum label just has a lot of really great stuff. Yeah, it's, it's such a big universe of blues mm. artists, and I'm, I'm always interested to hear the lesser-known ones especially too, you know. But let's face it, when it comes to some of the most iconic songs, Willie Dixon, he's just mind-blowing, you know. We have a bass player. I'm sure he played other instruments too, but big stand-up bass player who was like the humble kind of quiet giant and just wrote so many songs that you have no idea. Like, what, that one as well? So many tracks embedded in people's minds. 
And I discovered that when we did the short Cool Ones record, because Chris and I just went out at like a bull in a china shop and just like like a kid in a candy store, just picking everything. And then afterwards we were like, okay, what have we picked here? Who are the writers on these songs? And it was like, what? Willie Dixon has written about 80% of this record. It's crazy, you know, but he was just such a prolific, such a prolific writer, a quiet achiever. I'm very interested to hear some Willie Dixon. This is Crazy For My Baby from the Journey Into The Blues album from 1955. One of Mark Lazotte's big inspirations. Oh, you're back with Cheryl Lee, that radio chick. We're having a chat to Mark Lazotte. He has a new album out, Alone With Blues. With the album is a new tour mainly for New South Wales. I'm hoping that you're going to add an Adelaide date there. Oh, absolutely. The tour that you've just done first, the Red Hot Summer Tour, always a fabulous, fabulous lineup. Oh, it was great. I mean, it's such a beautiful way to come back into the fold. You know, last year I did so few shows. By, I guess, October, November, a few little things opened up. And then earlier this year, yeah, to do the Red Hot Summer was just like pinch me, you know. It was pinch me on my dreaming because – you know, suddenly we're outdoors. It's like six, 10,000 people done in a COVID safe, you know, fashion and all that. You know, I'm getting also getting to see more than anything was just being able to sort of see faces like, you know, Vicar and Linda and Chris Cheney and John Stevens and Jimmy, of course. You know, I, I saw a few times last year, of course, but we were all like in separate houses and separate, mm. separate parts of New South Wales. So it was a real reunion of music and just of faces and family. It was beautiful. It was great to, to play with my band too. And we brought Bernie down from Darwin, Bernie Bermond from the Injectors. He came down and we did this um, re-injected tour, which was just a cool way of sort of getting back to that that sound of that first album with Bernie. He was such a big part of that, like a massive part. It was fun. You know, it was really a lot of fun. The weather was just, you know, that's always a plus too when you're doing outdoor shows when the weather's just that perfect, agreeable temperature. But uh, if it was, would have been 48 degrees, I still would have been how to smile from ear to ear because it's just so good to play. When we, as the punters, were able to get out there and see you guys performing live music for us again, it made us appreciate it all so much better. And one thing I noticed was yeah. that the performers like yourself were just so joyous to be out there playing for us again. Yeah, I mean, I, I get hyped about playing anyway. anyway. <laughs> but, yeah, like... Next level. Next level of, of just, I, you know, I have to kind of use an analogy of, like, being a teenager again through last year especially and, and now again as well. I just have to think, like, okay, I remember when I was, like, 12 and 13 and I just wanted to play in gigs so much, in situ, you know, so bad. And I just had to be really patient and go, yeah, time hasn't come yet. Stay in your bedroom, keep working on it. But I mean, I, I, I couldn't wait too long. By the age of like 14 and a half, I was out doing gigs in pubs, you know. But a bit like that again, you know, I'm just like dying to do it, but I just have to be patient. So I have to use that kind of put that, you know, early teenage brain into myself again, because otherwise I'll go batty. I'll lose my mind. You know, I really will because I have to relate to it in some way. And so- prolonging gratification or whatever you want to say, that's how I've got to look at it. Just, yeah, hang in there. <laughs> well, that's right, hang in there. And the tour for the album starts in Canberra and it goes all through New South Wales. Yeah. We've moved most of them into next year now, which is oh. great. Um, great that we were able to do that, pick it up like a piece of furniture. 
an inconvenience, I'm, I'm sure, um, for some and for, for me. <laughs> but yeah, the, the postponing thing is, is I've learned it's not the worst thing. You know, like I did a lot of shows last year that were literally from the year before. And it's like, hey, here I am a year yeah. later. But yeah, and it just makes it even taste even sweeter. You know, it's a little bit yeah. part of our life yeah. now. Like I never cancel. I postpone and I will keep trying and trying until I will get there. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to just give up and go too hard. My agent, thankfully, they don't have that defeatist attitude either. They're tenacious and they're really... They're fierce and tenacious that's all i can say <laughs> and it's going to be like unwrapping that guitar and unwrapping yeah. it wrapping it up again until right. you can take it out of the box <laughs> without the smell of like extruded plastic yeah so, that's always the smell of christmas <laughs> or i'll never forget the smell of plastics <laughs> now if people wanted to keep track of when and where the rescheduled tour dates are they go to dieselmusic.com.au yep. yep. or the facebook page yeah, Facebook page, dieselmusic.com.au will take you to all of my platforms, take you to the merch, take you to Facebook, take you anywhere you want to go. It's always a good place to start. Excellent. Thank you so much. We're just as excited to see you back out on the road again. In the meantime, yeah. everybody, grab the album Diesel Alone with Blues. <laughs> You'll love it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And I'm loving the clear vinyl, by the way. I picked clear and I thought, is clear boring? No. I could do a color, but when now I've seen it. I'm like so glad I picked it. It's beautiful. So get some of that vinyl, guys. Nothing like vinyl. Uh, it sounds like best. Vinyl. It really does. Especially this this album just really needs to be played on vinyl. I really appreciate it, and we shall no see you down the front. Thanks <laughs> a lot. Have a great day. You Good take luck. care. Bye. You're with Cheryl Lee, that radio chick. Thank you so much for joining me on the Still Rocking It podcast. Hope to catch you again next time. Get out when you can. Support Aussie music, and I'll see you down the front.